0: forget that we are involved in a serious social revolution. We want our freedom and we want it now.
1: When you see something that is not right or fair or just, you have to sense something. You have to do something. It doesn't matter what fight or fight, for one people and one family. One person with a dream, with a vision can
0: change things. When people talk about you, what you want them to say? Well, this is such a great honor for me to be in this room with you, to have this conversation. I I can't tell you uh, what it means to me to have this opportunity. You represent something so precious to so many of us. And I just wanted to start by thanking you for that, for your willingness to wrap your arms around people like me and to make me think that it's possible to do difficult things, important things. And I just want to start by asking you to talk a little bit about that experience of growing up in rural Alabama in the Black Belt of America and how that cultivated the spirit that shaped your life and your vision. You used to have to pick cotton on your family's farm.
1: Well, I used to fuss
0: <laughs>
1: as a young child. I would complain, why this, why that? Yeah. And my mother would say, boy, there's something the we can do. Yeah. She said, I knew it's hard work. Mm but what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. We have to make a living. Mm -hmm. But I was hoping and almost praying Mm -hmm. for that day when people wouldn't have to Mm -hmm. work so hard Mm -hmm. in the hot sun. Mm -hmm. She was hoping also that Mm -hmm. things would be better, much better for us as a a people Mm -hmm. and for my family. My uh, mother, uh, she was always thinking ahead that if we get up early and go and pick as much cotton as we could, we would get more money. Mm. Because she knew the cotton would be heavier because the deal would be on it. So when it was weighed, money would be increased.
0: Your mother sounds really strategic. My uh,
1: dear mother, one day, she came across a little newspaper in downtown Shore that says something about a school in
0: Nashville, Tennessee Interesting. that black student could attend. She encouraged you to apply for that, even though that meant you'd be leaving the house, you'd be leaving the farm, you would not be contributing that, that extra labor.
1: Well, I was prepared mm-hmm. and willing to go
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to try to do what my, what's called doing better. Yeah to get an education. But in the beginning, I wanted to attend Troy State. You wanted to to desegregate Troy State. Submitted my application, my high school transcript. I never heard a word from the school. So I wrote a letter to Dr. King. I didn't tell my mother, my father, any of my sisters or brothers, any of my teachers. I told him I needed his help. Mm -hmm. He wrote me back and sent me a round trip, Greyhound bus ticket. Mm and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. And I can never, ever forget it.
0: You knew about Dr. King even before the boycott. You had heard his sermon. uh, The Apostle Paul preaches to American Christians. It's the speech he gives to all the people in Montgomery four days after Rosa Parks has been arrested. Uh, At the end of his speech, he says one day, they're gonna tell a story about a group of people in Montgomery, Alabama, and then he says, of black people who stood up for their rights. And when they stood up for their rights, the whole world changed. And you had an immediate response to that call to action. The message
1: really appealed to me.
0: Yeah.
1: It was sort of a social gospel message.
0: Yeah,
1: I wanted to do what I could uh, to make things better. When you see something that is not right or fair or just, you have to say something. Yeah. You have to do something. It's like a fire
0: mm.
1: burning up in your bones mm-hmm. and, and you cannot be silent. That's right. My um, mother was said to me, boy, don't get in trouble. Mm. Don't get in trouble. Mm. Uh, you can get hurt, you can get killed. Dr. King and, and Rosa Parks mm-hmm. and Edie Nixon and others that I read about during that time and later met, mm-hmm. inspired. I meaning get in what I call good trouble, yeah. necessary trouble, and I've been getting
0: in trouble ever since yeah. uh, the sit-ins, the freedom ride. You went to Nashville and began the work of learning nonviolence. When did nonviolence become an essential part of your worldview and the theology and the activism that you wanted to create?
1: Growing up, wanting to be a minister,
0: yeah.
1: uh, I, I felt that what Dr. King was saying yeah in his speeches was in keeping with the teaching of Jesus. So I readily accepted this idea of nonviolence, the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. We would talk to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being and never give up on anyone to try to reach them with kindness, uh, with hope, Faith and, and love.
0: Yeah.
1: So you may beat me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you may arrest me and throw me in jail,
0: but I'm not going to engage in violence. Mm-hmm. I'm going to respect you as a human being. And I'm wondering whether that is what gave you the courage to endure some of that brutality. Because a lot of people talk about nonviolence. They talk about the theology of love. But when you're on a bus in Anniston, Alabama or in Montgomery, Alabama, as you've been, surrounded by that mob and surrounded by that hate, surrounded by people who you know were prepared to do violent things, it's a different dynamic. And I accepted that.
1: Dr. King told us to, to love, it's yeah. in keeping with our Christian faith, to love everybody yeah. and never hate. He would say, hate is too heavy a burden to bear.
0: But it seems like you were strategic too. You all thought a lot about when and where to go someplace. It, it wasn't just, oh, here's an opportunity here. Let's just do it.
1: We just didn't jump up one day and decided right. that we would go to Selma.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We checked places out mm-hmm. whether there was a possibility of leadership or creating a viable organization, mm-hmm. uh, whether you had students. People were prepared to get out and work and organize. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Um, We did everything that we could to bring attention uh, to a situation that was not good for people. Mm -hmm. And that we could organize people. There were religious leaders, uh, teachers and lawyers and others in these communities and neighborhoods. When there come a time through the training
0: yeah.
1: and accepting nonviolence, the philosophy as a way of living,
0: mm-hmm. as a way of life,
1: mm-hmm. that you become
0: prepared? Mm-hmm. It, it it was a lot of rigorous training to 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 be prepared to be in those very stressful situations and and maintain that commitment to nonviolence, and I don't think people appreciate how much work went into preparing people for that?
1: Well, it was something that we became committed to. Yeah. That had to go through role-playing, mm-hmm. social drama, mm-hmm. uh, pretending that you were beating someone, uh, uh, knocking someone down, mm-hmm. someone's blowing smoke in your face mm-hmm. and calling you all type of name, mm-hmm. training people how to be disciplined, mm-hmm. and and not giving up on on the Freedom Rides in May of 1961, uh, when I was 21 years old, leaving Washington DC for the first time Mm -hmm. to go on the Freedom Ride. I thought we were going to die. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I thought I saw death.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But I believe God Almighty kept me here for a reason. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. I see that picture of you and and your head is bloodied, this willingness to get back on a bus uh, to do it again. And they interviewed you after some of that sit-ins. And what was interesting to me about the way you talked about it is you were very clear. You said, we're not just trying to do this for the Black people in Nashville. We're trying to do this for everybody because they may not realize it yet, but what they're doing is wrong. And I wouldn't be the Christian that I claim to be. I wouldn't be the good person I claim to be. if I didn't try to help them get past this wrong thing they're doing. I think people want redemption, our faith tradition. We understand the power of redemption. We preach about it, and we understand that there has to be confession, there has to be repentance. But collectively, as a society, we haven't really embraced that in this country. We haven't really wanted to acknowledge the legacy of slavery and the history of lynching and segregation. People want to skip over the apology part and you still see these Confederate flags and these symbols of resistance, seems to me part of what is so urgent right now is that we get people to have the courage to say, you know, this was wrong and we have to reject that. But you have seen that redemption in ways that I think has been so extraordinary.
1: A few short years ago, one of the members of the Klan Mm. who who beat me and beat my seatmate, Uh, in a little town called Rock Hill, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and left us lying in a pool of blood. Yeah. Many years later, one member of the Klan mm-hmm. and his son came to my office mm-hmm. in Washington. And he said, uh, I've been a member of the Klan. I'm one of the people that beat you mm-hmm. and left you bloody. Mm-hmm. I want to apologize. His son started crying,
0: mm.
1: then he started crying. Mm. He came up with his son mm. to hug me, I mm. hugged him back. Mm. And I saw this gentleman three other times. Mm. Uh, it's the power
0: yeah.
1: of the way of, of love, yeah. of forgiveness yeah. to admit it.
0: Yeah. And Sam change yeah. and, and move on. It does seem to me that if we can show people that on the other side, of repentance on the other side of confession, on the other side of acknowledgement, there's something beautiful, like what you experienced with that clan member, then maybe they'll find their courage uh, to stand up and, and talk about the wrongfulness of these things. And I've been curious how you would talk about what you learned from your time with uh, Rosa Parks and Dr. King, what they taught you, what they left you with that has allowed you to do the work you've done there's it, something about these individuals
1: touch me, they reach me. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been for E.D. Nixon or Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Reverend Rath Abernathy, mm-hmm. and, and so many others, I don't know what would have happened to me. Mm-hmm. I could have been lost. Mm-hmm. But for Martin Luther King Jr. to sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. Mm -hmm. My First Baptist Church. It's impossible, impossible for a poor, barefooted boy to dream that one day he would meet Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. I remember so well when he said, are you the boy from Troy? Mm -hmm. Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I'm John Robert Lewis. And he called me boy from Troy. <laughs> How is the boy from Troy doing? <laughs> and sometimes he went and said things like, John, do you still preach? And I was say, yes, Dr. King, when I'm taking a shower so no one can hear me. <laughs> uh-uh. And he would laugh, I think, when he, when he was assassinated, when he died, Um, something died in all of us. Mm. If he had lived, you know, he was a very young man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe our country would be much better Mm. and the world community would be better. Mm.
0: We were talking earlier about those critical moments, 1964, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And it seems like our focus was on ending the violations of rights and less on remedying this long history of violations and what it would take to repair all the damage that has been done. And today I'm thinking, you know, in addition to no longer denying black people the right to vote, maybe these states should have done something reparational, should have done something remedial. They should have said, you know what, we're going to let black people, we're going to automatically register every black person to vote.
1: The vote is most powerful non-violent instrument or tool that we have in a democratic society. And we must make it easy and simple mm-hmm. for people to use it. Even the people who gave their very line, yes. people who took the beatings yes. and, and suffered. I yeah. uh, said we have a right to know what is in the food we eat, Yes. what is in the water we drink or the air we breathe. Yeah.
0: You were the youngest speaker at the uh, March on Washington in 1963 and Um, you were very eloquent and you were very compelling. I had
1: worked on the speech with some of the staffers of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but I was determined Mm -hmm. uh, to inspire Mm -hmm. young people, Mm -hmm. another generation. Mm -hmm. And when I looked out and saw that sea of humanity,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I said to myself, this is it, Mm -hmm. I must go for it. Mm -hmm. I tell you, We came together and we worked all of us very hard on getting the Lord's cry Mm -hmm. on the mall that day. Mm -hmm. But it went so well until the president, President Kennedy invited us down to the White House Mm -hmm. after the march was over. And he stood in the door of the Oval Office greeting us and beaming Mm -hmm. like a proud father. Mm -hmm. And he kept saying to each one of us, you did a good job, you did a good job. And when he got to Dr. King, he said, You did a good job and you had a dream. Mm. That was my last time seeing President Kennedy.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. I admired him. Yeah. There was something about the man yeah. that was so inspiring. Really.
0: Yeah. yeah. You talked about how he and Robert Kennedy were an influence to get into politics. I know you first ran in the 70s and then you ran again in the 80s. I, I'm curious. What motivated you to make that shift?
1: I saw in politics that you could be a force for good. Mm-hmm. So I was motivated mm-hmm. to, to run for office and mm-hmm. people started encouraging me, you should mm-hmm. run for mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And I made a decision. Mm-hmm. I don't think I changed that much. No. I think I'm the same, same person. <laughs> uh, I said what I want to say and I, mm-hmm. most part I do what I want to do. <laughs> Um, I think you have to be a force for good to inspire people, to encourage people.
0: I was so uh, moved when you organized the protests around gun violence, and I'm wondering how you think we should be teaching people what it means to be hopeful. How do you think about communicating that to to both your colleagues in the Congress and and another generation of leaders? You may get down,
1: you may get knocked down, but you get up and you keep moving, you mm. keep pressing on. That was part of the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. A new day, a better day yeah. were gonna come, but we had to help that day come. Yeah. We couldn't be quiet, yeah.
0: couldn't be silent. Mm.
1: We have to be engaged mm. in creating a way out of nowhere.
0: Mm. You think there are strategies that we've abandoned that we need to pick back up to confront the issues that we're looking at today.
1: I think there's so many tactics and techniques uh, that we sort of abandoned Mm -hmm. uh, that we need to go back and pick up these techniques Mm -hmm. and tactics and use them. Mm -hmm. We need to teach people, especially our young people. Mm -hmm. We taught uh, grade school students and High school students and college students to learn to embrace the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence, mm-hmm. how to engage in nonviolent direct action. Mm-hmm. Um, we need it now more than ever before.
0: I, I think you've brought into our political culture this spirit of activism, this spirit of 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 uh, strategic protest, a willingness to even occasionally be disruptive. You haven't attended all of the inaugurations of presidents when you felt like there were issues around the legitimacy of those elections. And I I see a new generation of politicians that seem to embrace some aspects of that. And I'm wondering whether you think that the kind of modeling you've done um, is uh, gonna be part of your legacy that's important to you as a politician
1: been so impressed with this new breed of young men and young women that are coming into elective position. It's not just at the national level, mm-hmm. but also at the local level.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think we, now more than ever before, need men and women of conscience as judges, mm-hmm. especially on the federal level level, but also at the state and local level to say, we got to, we got to mend, mm-hmm. we got to make up. Yeah. People don't have a hundred years to make up. Yeah. We need yeah. to do
0: it and do it now. You've become somebody who's had such an impact on the world. When people talk about you uh, 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, what you want them to say, how you want to be thought of, how you want to be talked about? My hope.
1: I don't think I would have much to say about it, but it would be, be trying to create a better society, a better world, helping to liberate and free people, helping to save people and move people to a different and better sense of humanity.
0: I have met people who worked with you, there's so many that, whose names have never really been known, but I encounter them every now and then because I get to live in Alabama and I I talk about a man I met who was in a church. I was giving a talk and he was in the back, he's in a wheelchair and he was staring at me the whole time I was giving this talk and he had this stern, almost angry look on his face. And uh, when I finished my talk, people came up, they were very nice and appropriate, but that older man, older black man in the wheelchair just kept staring and then he finally wheels himself to the front. And when he came up to me, he said, do you know what you were doing? And I just stood there and then he asked me again, he said, do you know what you're doing? And I mumbled something, I don't even remember what I said. And then he asked me one last time, he said, do you know what you're doing? And he said, I'm gonna tell you what you're doing. He said, you're beating the drum for justice. You keep beating the drum for justice. And I was so moved. I mean, I was also relieved because I just didn't know what was about to happen. But then he said, come here, come here, come here. And he pulled me by my jacket and he pulled me down close to me and he turned his head. And he said, you see this scar I have right here behind my writer? He's got that scar in Greene County Alabama, 1963, working with C.T. Vivian. Yeah, green candy. Then he turned his head, he said, you see this cut down here? I got that in Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, trying to register people to vote. And then he said, you see this bruise? That's my dog spot. I got that in Birmingham, Alabama, 1965, during the children's crusade. And then he said, people look at me, they think I'm some old man covered with cuts and bruises and scars, but I'm gonna tell you something. He said, these are not my cuts. These are not my bruises, these are not my scars. He said, these are my medals of honor. Mm. And I am sitting here sitting next to you and I still see the scars. And I know that there are the bruises and I know that there are the cuts. And yet you are still talking about love and redemption and justice and inspiring people like me. And I just want you to know, I don't think there's an American living uh, that is more honored more representative of the great values of this nation, of the hope of this nation than you. And uh, I just I just cannot tell you how thrilled and privileged I am uh, to have this opportunity and to have this opportunity to share. And I want you to know I am gonna keep fighting. A lot of us are gonna keep fighting. And you have caused us to believe that we cannot rest until justice comes. And I wanna thank you for that. Wish you well. Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. Bless you. Okay. Yeah. Bless you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.